Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always... Doc is back for the mailbag. Dr. Nirban Mahanti, how are you, buddy? I am very good. How are you? I'm exceptionally well, thank you, sir. As always, to date stamp this, we're recording this on Thursday morning before you hear this on a Sunday. Uh, so again, whatever happened in the meantime, forgive us. Uh, however, this is a mailbag edition anyway. We don't tend to talk about current events uh, or even what's going on in the market necessarily unless our listeners want to know about it. This is our chance to hear from you and your chance to hear from us, to hear from you and from us to hear from you, from us to hear from you, from us. That's very confusing. I'm done. Uh, but- <laughs> Let's get started. You know, before we get started though, if you have a question, before we get into the content, if you want to hear from us, if you have a question, topic, comment, suggestion, we'd love to hear from you. And we'd love to hear from you via any of our social channels or even old school, semi-old school. We don't, please don't mail us. Don't, don't literally post us a question. That I promise you won't get answered. But a little bit less old school, but still old school these days. Email info at fool.com.au if you have a question or a comment hit us up there that goes to our wonderful member services team who do a spectacular job looking after our members um, that will make its way to us so you can do that if you want to alternatively jump on the socials because we get to interact there hit us up I'll go, I'll go with Twitter first because Doc's at the moment only still on Twitter I've got to, still got to fix that have you got your TikTok account yet Doc? Um, no but I'm considering TikTok sounds cool okay <laughs> I actually would pay to see that. Um, all right, hit us up on Twitter. Doc is at Anirban Mahanti. I'm at TMF Scott P. And The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU if you're on Twitter. That's where most of our questions come from, mate. It seems to be the most engaged audience. It's kind of fun too. And as I've said before, if you're not on Twitter, jump on, curate your own news feed. It's a great way to get extra news and events and kind of, you, you got to be careful. You don't turn it into an echo chamber of only people you agree with. But just to get kind of, I follow a whole lot of people, a whole lot of journos and news people and investors. Really cool way to kind of create your own kind of stuff you're interested in. So have a go at that. If you're not there yet, jump on. And of course, follow us when you get there. If you're looking for people to follow, jump on docs at Iban Mahanti or at TMF Scott P. Come and follow us. If you're on Facebook, you can go to The Motley Fool Australia or I'm Scott Phillips Money is my work page. Or you can jump on Insta. Doc, you on Insta yet? No. Soon. <laughs> at TMF Scott P again or at The Motley Fool AU. We love hearing from you. We do try and respond to each person. We don't always we don't always answer them. In fact, we rarely answer them directly um, in direct messages, but we certainly will say thanks for the email. If you've got any clarifying questions, we'll ask them there. And then we'll throw your question onto this particular style of podcast, our mailbag episodes, which we do every Sunday. Now, mate, right now, I am somewhere on the way to Hay. I'll be in Hay this afternoon. So when, when, when this is going to air, I'll be somewhere across the Hay Plain. Apparently, it's a reasonably boring old drive. So I will probably not have our podcast on because I hear enough of my own voice without having to listen to it again. But if you're also around that area, feel free to come and say good day. If you see me around Central West New South Wales over the next couple of weeks, if you happen to be listening out there, let us know. I got a really cool question from someone further out than that. I'll hold that in suspense until maybe this week or next, Doc, whenever we get to it. But a really cool mailbag from someone not in a major city, put it that way. All right, let's get on with it. Alex asked the question. He says, hey, Scott and Doc, love the podcast. Thank you, Alex. It's great to listen to two guys who are obviously extremely switched on, but also down to earth. Thank you. We appreciate that. We'd love to buy you both a beer one day. We'd love that even more. Thank you, Alex. Uh, we'll put it on your tab, mate. Let us, know, let us know what your local pub is. And if we ever drop past, we'll, uh, we'll throw it on the tab. Uh, he says, I have a question. Or hey, maybe it's a share. I think it's a he. I have a question regarding Altium. I purchased some of Altium back when it was $15 a share. Well done. Before COVID, I read a number of commentators calling for Altium to become a $50 stock. What's your opinion on the company? It's currently paying a 1.15% dividend. 
What needs to happen for this to increase? Cheers, guys. Alex, who finishes, hashtag get doc on TikTok. <laughs> I, I actually will pay for that. Uh, all right, <laughs> doc. Altium, is it a company you follow? Yeah, so we, we own that in Pro. Um, so, it, it you know, make, they make uh, software for uh, printed circuit board design. Mm-hmm. And so I think the thing to think about here is, well, um, as there's more and more things that become electronic, then you need printed circuit boards to be designed. Mm. Um, and, and therefore, there's a demand for that product. So printed circuit boards, right? for those who aren't techies, what, what is a printed circuit board? Yeah, like if you look inside a computer, right? I mean, it'll have a... I, I don't people do that with working computers, uh, by the way, but, uh, but if you have an old one around the house. Yeah, if you have one that's not working, <laughs> you'll see there's, like, there's a green board um, with, you know, some chips on it and some, um, you know, squiggly lines or wires connecting these various chips. So that's basically right. a printed circuit board. And kind of, is that the brains of the computer? Is that simple? Yeah, like it's, it's basically, you know, the memory card, the, right. the, the CPU, okay. um, the CPU design, all those things are part and right. parcel okay. of designing a printed circuit board. Now, you would have basically logic uh-huh. since there, you know, there would be graphics, logic, etc. Um, many such components. E- even a toaster could have a printed circuit board if it, you no know, for example, well, if it's, you know, it's connected to the internet and giving, telling you how the weather is and it's going to toast your bread a little bit more or less based on uh, uh, based on the weather. Mate, I'm, uh, I mean, I'm equal parts fascinated and, and horrified by that idea. <laughs> I, 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 so, you, you know this, my, my air conditioner is internet connected so I can tell Google to turn on the air conditioner and will do it. Um, so, I, I kind of, like that'd be kind of cool. On the other hand i can't think of anything less tech than a toaster like if you have to if you have to wi-fi your toaster mm-hmm. i don't know i probably will one day to be fair so i'm, I'm happy to go up myself here but a wi-fi toaster do we need that probably not but it's a, it's a cool example i like giving the toaster oh, example. Yeah, it's a great example i love the toaster will example. the internet connected fridge ever take off i don't know like i mean maybe like it's good to know if if i can know whether the fridge has milk and if the fridge somehow has a way to alert yeah, right. me that you know you need milk um I have that problem. Like often what happens is I, I'm not a milk drinker, but my right. uh, daughter is and she needs the milk yeah, and because right, I yeah. don't drink the milk. Yeah, you don't I don't it. know uh, whether it's there or not and she never tells me when it's finished. So you put the finished, uh, you know, yeah. milk yeah. can or bottle back. <laughs> like I said, I hate that. I, and then Why do know, people like, do that? What? I have no idea. At least she does that, mate. My young bloke leaves that yoga packs all over the floor. So that, at least she puts it back. What's the problem? Like the empty juice <laughs> bottle, the empty. This goes. So I would like the fridge actually okay. to to not only know that there is a you know there's either it's missing yeah. or if it's there it's empty or it's like half empty, right? That'd so be that'd be cool. really Maybe we need to connect to milk. Maybe that's the solution. That's we're the looking solution. For. So I, I, I said, you know, it's it's enabling uh, future life. I like it. I um, like it. So there's a company that's enabling future life. This company has got some fascinating customers, right? Yeah, right. Um, so. So it basically it makes sorry I took a massive tangent. Yeah. Then it basically so it, it's like so think about it. I mean, I'm trying to think of a good example. It's basically an internet connected or you know a, a online cloud solution to allow a designer to put together to, to literally design what it might look like as a printed circuit board and then put it in a production, right? Like to design where the chips go, how they're all connected, what it looks yeah. like, and then say to someone, go and make this thing. Yeah, so it's not fully cloud. I, I think that's, oh, right, that's okay. important important uh, distinction here. So they have uh, they have. A bunch of software that right. is uh, SaaS uh, sold uh, yeah, a, sold on a subscription license, right. but it's not cloud not based. Cloud. You have to Makes still sense. download the software and run it on your device or your computer or your laptop or your yep. you know Mac, preferably. Yep. Um, so, so that's what you do. So uh, I think for what what needs to happen for this company, mm-hmm. 
Well, uh, they need to execute on, you know, continuing to grow their market share. Um, so, uh, you know, p- providing people free access and then getting them to sort of, you know, become um, become the people who are actually going to advocate for uh, this tool to be used in various companies and interact. Yeah. You know, so that, that, is, that needs to happen. Uh, there's just some general tailwind there um, with more electronics, for example. Yeah. Um, there's that. Um, the other thing that is, I think, very important for this company, and it's actually important for many other software companies that are sort of making this transition from being uh, downloadable software to sort of, you know, software of the cloud with yep. uh, with, a, with a sort of a license that you pay, you know, on a per month basis or a per year basis, is just the number of um, pirated softwares that exist. So the, mm. there's a huge opportunity to convert a bunch of people, you know, a bunch of users who mm. are current, Currently not paying. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, so, and it's not just true yeah. for this company; it's true for many other companies. And shades of Microsoft in the old days, right? When you could use pirate copies of Microsoft Office or Windows, and yeah. kind of get away with it. And then eventually, Microsoft started to say, "Hey, we're going to make you log on and just confirm that you own this piece of software." It's a, something like that. Yeah, something like that. So, I mean, that, that's an ongoing process. I yeah. mean, um, you know, you you hope that eventually people want the most modern, the, the latest version of the software. Yeah. yeah. So, so that should happen. What I'm saying, those. You know, um, drivers there. When would the dividend go up? Well, the dividend probably goes up only slowly. This is not going to be a dividend pay for mm. some time because mm. this is still in sort of this you know grow growth mode. Mm. Um, and what else can I say? I think those are the key things really for this company. Um, the you know we don't do share price targets, so you know people say fifty dollars. Well, you know, well it, it kind of got close to forty and then has backtracked a bit mm. and then you know it's going to do its zig and zag uh, yin and yang until it, it you know as long as again keeps executing on expanding on to in getting larger and larger share of its market then mm. it should mm. should be doing fine i think nice i um, i like that too it's a it's a uh, holding me out a multi four million dollar portfolio uh, it's about twelve percent position, I have to say, and that's largely because of gains, not because we planned it that way. So, um, as always, we reserve the right to change our weighting without necessarily um, choosing to to give up on the company. But certainly, it's look, it's it, it's doing a really good job. At, as you say, it's growing market and it's growing share in a growing market, which is always something that's a nice combination to see. Um, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty successful business. Recently, of course, uh, the, the COVID has impacted it as well as other companies, and it took a little bit of a hit. I think seven percent on a, on a recent day. Um, but it's just one of those one of those. I think. We it's it's too. David Gardner, one of our co-founders, says this phrase: "Winners keep winning, right? Winners tend to keep winning." And I think it, it's both it's both trite and short at the same time. We've got to be a little bit careful. To, you know, if we throw it out there, you know, oh, winners keep winning. It's like, well, yeah, you could say that. We're not saying that they necessarily will or always will. Just they tend to. And so, to some degree, there's there's obviously something in the in the secret sauce about a, a company that can continue to either grow its market and or take customers from its competitors or take market share. It is almost, by definition, evidence of something being done right. Doesn't mean it will go wrong. Doesn't mean it can't change around. But there is some sense that if you if you're doing something that's, that's gaining your customers, right? Um, you can uh, use a simple example: Apple, right? It is, it's gaining more and more customers every single year. You can like it, dislike it. You can hate it. You can love it. Whatever. It's hard to argue it's not doing something right if it's been able to, able to do that. And so it's harder in printed circuit boards unless you're an absolute industry expert to be able to say, oh, it's because they use, you know, um, process number fifty two that that you know connects the doohickey with the what's it in a really time effective and cost effective way. But you just know that a whole lot of people who are smart, thoughtful, informed people are finding Altium's solution a good one. Um, 
it sounds again, it sounds almost a bit neglectful to say, well, it must be okay then. But there is just that truism that winners do tend to keep on winning for, for very, very good reasons. And Altium is one of those companies in in my view uh, that seems to have the industry by the scruff of the neck and doing a great job executing. Is that fair to say? I think so. Great question, Alex. Um, and keep up the hashtag, get doc on TikTok. Next question from Michael, mate. Uh, Michael says, hey, Scott, I'm a long-time listener to your podcast and subscriber at Share Advisor and Extreme Opportunities. Thank you, mate. He says, thank you both for your insights. I've been doing some of my own research lately. Uh, I came across this stock, Novonics. I was just wondering if this would be considered to chat it on your next podcast or if you have any thoughts about the company. Thank you from Michael. He says, sorry, I know you must get a lot of messages like this. Cheers. Uh, Michael, we do get a few uh, and that's okay. We don't mind. As I said, we try and answer every question we get. We don't get to every single one of them. We do occasionally pair a couple up. So um, we, won't, we won't promise to answer everyone's question, but we try and get through as many as we possibly can. Doc, Novonix, is this a company that you're familiar with? I actually have no idea what this company does, unfortunately. <laughs> and had <laughs> I read this question before, maybe I'd have looked it up. <laughs> that's um, my fault. No, so... I, I, I've talked about Novonix before. I don't know it particularly well either. I'll, I'll grab this one and feel free to jump in at the end if you want. So <laughs> I, I got to say, I don't tend to go much further than this, but there's a couple of thoughts that come from it. The company's own ASX uh, description says, Novonix, in brackets, formerly Graphite Corp Limited, and I'll come back to that, is an integrated developer and supplier of high-performance materials, equipment, and services for the global lithium battery, uh, lithium ion, sorry, battery industries with operations in the USA and Canada and sales in 14 countries. MVX also owns large and high-grade natural graphite deposit in an established mining province in Australia. Uh, I look. I don't know Novonics. I don't have an investment view on it. What I what I will tell our listeners who might be thinking about this is, um, they may remember that well, I want to say five years ago, Doc, maybe graphite and graphene was going to be the next big thing, right? It was the and this, it's actually really cool tech. Um, graphene as a as a as a substance, I don't think it's probably a compound or molecule, whatever it is, really, really cool. Super thin, super strong. The, the, at the time, the story was all about these potential applications for this graphene that could be just spectacularly game-changing for everything. Now, that's far it's come to nothing. I wouldn't rule it out. Um, as we know about the dot-com boom and bust, almost all of those business models actually eventually were proven out, just the timing was wrong. So maybe graphene will come back again. So let's just park that. The new trend, the new excitement is lithium. And Nevonics is in that too. <laughs> And I, I don't want to be too cynical. I will just say that you want to be a little bit careful chasing the latest trends, right? I've said before on the podcast, I'll say again, I'm sure a dozen times. If someone had told me in 1970 that air travel was going to go up 10,000 fold, I would have sold everything I own, mortgaged my house and bought airline stocks and I would have lost a fortune, right? What I learned from that is just because the trend may be real at a demand level doesn't mean there's a fortune to be made by investing in the industry itself. Now, there are ways to make money from travel, notably airports in the end is what actually ended up working. Um... Graphite, graphite, maybe it becomes a big thing. Lithium, look, I absolutely expect 25 years we're all driving electronic vehicles or a lot of us are, right? Most new cars, if not all new cars in 25 years will be electronic vehicles. They will require batteries. Those batteries will probably, but not necessarily be lithium ion batteries. So the first thing is, even if we're right about EVs, it might not be lithium. Even if it is lithium, just because there's more demand for it doesn't mean the price will go up. If you look at the price of oil over a century, it stayed roughly level. Guess why? Because we found more of it. So again, even if lithium goes up 100-fold in volume in demand, does that mean a lot of money for the miners? Maybe. Or maybe it just means a whole lot more supply and no one actually makes any money at all like airlines. So I don't know Novonix. I do know it's one of those... It's one of those companies become a hot stock. Man. If you look at the share price chart, it goes nowhere all year. And then all of a sudden in about May, they got from 23 cents to $1.30. I've got to say that either means they found something great or people are getting way too excited. So, uh, you know, if someone had asked me about this at 20 cents, I would have said avoid it, went to a dollar subsequently. So was I wrong? We'll see. 
Um, plenty of companies do this and then and disappear again. Foslock, the most recent one that I can remember, went to the went to the moon, then fell back again. So I would just always be if you're asking about it because other people are talking about it because the price is up. Not an unreasonable question to ask, but that should give you at least a couple of red flags. To say, hey, is this a bit of a story stock that's getting carried away? I would argue in almost certain, well, certain's too much. There's a very strong possibility that people are just getting carried away. I wouldn't be investing, trying to follow the money on this one uh, when it's when it's rising and falling based on sentiment and the kind of macro trend that's just way too easy to apply. Doc, any thoughts on either Novonix or my thoughts on trends and the way you think about investing? Oh, no, no thoughts on thoughts. I will, <laughs> let's stick with those thoughts. <laughs> Good question, Michael. I think that's Doc saying my thoughts were rubbish, but we'll move on. Um, <laughs> All right, I've got a question from Craig, mate. Craig says, hey, Scott and Doc, big fan of the podcast. I recently purchased 10 high-growth international tech stocks. That sounds like it's right up your alley, mate. High-growth international and tech. That's like the Doc trifecta. I know, if, I, know, I know Doc is a fan of high-growth. There we go. If it's not too cheeky a question or too boring for your listeners, I'd be interested in your thoughts on the companies. Now, he gives us a big, big list, mate. There's Mercado Libre, there's C Limited, CrowdStrike, Twilio, Trade Desk, Shopify, Datadog, MongoDB, Alteryx, Atlassian. He says, appreciate your great wisdom, full on. P.S. Sorry if I asked so many questions, but I do love the podcast and can't help myself. Craig, more than happy to get as many questions you want to ask, mate. As I said, we can't ever promise to answer them all, but we love hearing from our listeners. And again, if we get the same question from a couple of people, we know it's obviously something in the zeitgeist and that, that helps to boost it up the, up the uh, roster a little bit. A lot of questions there, mate. If I asked you to talk about all 10 of them, we're here for an hour and a half. Um, That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> of that, maybe I'll, um, what's the best way to do this? Of that list, give me two that stand out to you, either because they're interesting technology, they've got big potential, they're your favourites of the list. Find, find me a reason to talk about two of those stocks, something a bit different. Yeah, so I think a uh, number of them are interesting. So... Um, I'm a big fan of so okay. Uh, so disclosure, <laughs> disclosure purposes, I own shares in Mercado Libre. Okay, um, I have some options in CloudStrike. Okay, um, are they positive options or negative options? Uh, they are synthetic long options. So basically, okay. so you make money if it goes up. Yeah, basically, Good. it's it's a it's it's a stock equivalent cool. option. Um, I have a. I have stock of Twilio, Trade Desk. <laughs> I have nothing in Shopify. That doesn't mean that I, these, these are not good companies. Or Datadog, uh, MongoDB, I own. Uh, Alteryx, I own. I don't own Atlassian. There uh, you look, go. That's, well, that's, that's, a good, that's a good first, uh, first okay. snippet. So I, I think, you know, the interesting ones I, I think to, to talk about might be um, MongoDB is an interesting company. I think I, I find that interesting. And um, Macadre Libre is an interesting company because, you know, we can talk about it in terms of parallels. That is my that is my biggest miss on this. Of all, the, I, I'm not I'm not a particularly you know deep tech investor as you you all know. Doc and the listeners probably have guessed by now. That's one that I've followed for I don't know how many years. And David Guy has been talking about it, and I've thought this is cool, this is great, I should buy this, and I never got around to it. And I don't know how many houses I could buy if I just actually done what I thought I should do at the time. I thought I should do it because it has been a st- stunning winner uh, for investors. I'm an idiot for missing it. Um, all right, maybe maybe talk us through Mercado Libre and, and Mongo if you will. Yeah, so so Mercado Libre, you know, the easiest way to think about that is it's a little bit Amazon, it's a little bit eBay, it's a little bit PayPal, um, all mixed together, right? So this is this is a this is, I forgot the name. I can never remember the name of the founder, but the founder basically went to do a master's degree in Stanford, and he came up with his uh, business plan there. Um, and the business plan basically was to set up an e-commerce business in Latin America, right? Right, and kind of library means a large market or something, doesn't it? Was it? Yeah, mean? it's basically it's it's a 
Amazonian market, I think yeah, is yeah, that's yeah. what it means. Right, okay. Um, and, and so they basically set up, you know, an e-commerce business in Latin America. And that's what, you know, they basically operate exclusively mm-hmm. in Latin America. Yeah. And uh, so, they, so they have buyers and they have sellers. And the more buyers they have, the more sellers they get. So lots of beautiful network effects. Nice like that. They've got... Um, and that's another thing we'll talk about, by the way, next week. Oh, next week. In our week. Yes, special. In our so moats, moats. tune in for that. Right. Um, and, and then, you, you know, the other interesting thing is that... Now, one could always ask is why didn't eBay – well, eBay actually partnered with them. It was mm. a shareholder in this company. Oh, they um, did too. Right. And, uh, and and then eBay eventually sold out when – just before, I think, the eBay was spinning out PayPal, if I'm getting my story right here. Um, <laughs> and then now PayPal is actually a shareholder in uh, – uh, you know, this – in um, in in Mercado Libre, and the reason I'm pointing this out is, see, you know, because the relationships have changed over time. Mm. But it it says something, and, and you know, this is this is sort of you know, you could again, it's a generalization statement. But doing business in emerging markets mm. is actually extremely hard, right. and you can take an existing idea that is well known elsewhere, but you need to refine it. Mm. To suit the local market, yeah, sure, right? Okay. Yeah, and 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 that's what the founder did. Basically, took an idea that's you know that's understood well in North America, or and in, in the other parts of the world, like you mm. know eBay and the you know, marketplace idea of uh, Amazon, and applied it, contextualized it for Latin America, right? And I think the, uh, and, and and basically, you know, once you've gotten ahead, it becomes hard for the other guys who compete. So they mm-hmm. you know they have to collaborate. Is I guess the thing. Then they've got something called Macadro. Pego, Pego, mm-hmm. Pego, which is basically um, their uh, payments platform. Yep. Right. So again, you've got a net, you've got you've got a marketplace, and on the marketplace, people are using your payments platform. So all the transactions that are flowing through, you're taking a cut on mm-hmm. that. Uh, that's a nice and beautiful business. Um, so and and then finally, I think the 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 thing to realize is Latin America is a huge market. Yeah. Internet penetration in Latin America is relatively low. Um, compared to developed worlds, and as you know, so it's got a natural tailwind mm. of you know rising living standards, uh, growth and uh, growth in the economies, and you know, and therefore it, it can keep winning for a long time. Yeah. Right. Um, the biggest factor, risk factor, I think about here is that it operates in those economies which <laughs> are uh, have yeah. a lot of currency risk to it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and not not a small amount of governance risk, right? So pure sovereign risk. Yeah, like I, I, I mean, yeah, so Venezuela. Like I mean, there's there's the default risk, and you know they've had to do some, uh, um, you know, from time to time. They, you know, there might be you know the potential of a write down or things yeah, like that in yeah. certain part of the business. Um, they had to do some reorg in one of the countries in terms of how the um, the businesses. Board reports, but not mm. not the main company, mm. but you know the subsidiary that opts. I think it was out out of uh, Venezuela that mm. they had to do a reorg. Um, so these things can happen. It has been a fantastic, fantastic winner. Mate, uh, I, you're going to finish this podcast by yourself. I just literally looked at the share price graph. It is up tenfold in five years. I am an absolute idiot. Yeah, like you know, I'm I just, am, uh, I feel actually a little unwell. Is it is it up that much? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was ninety five dollars fifty on the second of October. Now it's nine hundred fifty three dollars and seventy seven cents. Almost exactly a ten bagger in five years. And I've held it for longer than that. So, so I feel I feel like a genius. actually. Why would you tell me to buy this stock? All the other stocks you told me to buy, you've never told me to buy Mercado Libre. So the problem is that every stock that I've told you to buy, you have never bought. Well, you told me to buy Mercado Libre. I told you to buy Apple, and you didn't buy it. <laughs> Can you not rub it? I told you to buy Tesla and you didn't oh, buy it. This is a 12, so so 12 years ago, this was $18 stock. 
so I mean, I mean yeah this is a fantastically I mean there's, there's been a great business right. and you know one of those businesses it's that, that, uh, <laughs> with a lot of tailwind would you still uh, buy today? yeah well I still own it it's a pretty big position should I buy some? yeah we should buy Tesla before that I'm not getting let's not get let's get a Tesla okay so today's the 25th of June this goes to air on Sunday so I can't buy it till Wednesday can you remind me on Wednesday to buy some stock? buy Tesla first <laughs> Let's move on. Um, let's, let, let's let's talk about Mongo, MongoDB, mate. Um, so of the of the ones that were mentioned by Craig, you mentioned your holds. That gives gives us a, something of a sense. Um, MongoDB. Now, this is I got to say, I get lost pretty quickly in this one, but you do a really good job explaining it. Um, it's all to do with databases. Yeah. So this this one is uh, interesting. So the databases basically are rows and columns. So like the easiest yes. way to think of a database like is an Excel spreadsheet. Excel spreadsheet. Now. Um, in, in a very simple form, what you're always trying to do is you're trying to create all these tables that are linked together. So they're all, let's say, two-dimensional tables with okay. rows and columns, and then you're linking them together um, if you have multiple things that you want to link. Right. Right. So you think about patients in a, in a hospital. Okay. They have names. They have uh, phone numbers. There mm -hmm. might be some other data. You know, there are other records, which are basically other tables and things like that. Medical and records, heart medical, rates, yeah. conditions, allergies. Yeah. And, right. and, and all of these things will be separate tables, but yep. two-dimensional tables that you're linking together. Now, the, the issue really is that a lot of data that we create is actually not by default two-dimensional because um, there are many dimensions to a, you know, you have a patient, yep. for example or a person, they have, some people have a middle name, some people don't. That's okay. an additional data point. Yeah, interesting. Right? Uh, there's date of birth, there's, you know, various other factors that mm. you might want to consider if you have, you know, if you want to put all that data and not try to structure it in two-dimensional format, yep. it quickly, it starts becoming hairy. Okay. That's not really been a big deal because that's what database people do. You leave it feel blank, right? That, that, well, that still work. If I have a middle language, leave that feel blank and... Yeah. So, so, so the, you know, and, and they would organize the tables and, and the, right. the way you organize the tables is important because it, it helps with the speed of access of a database, right? So, I mean, uh, if, 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 you know, you could make everything a blank and you can, you can create a bloated database, yeah, right. then your database would be really slow. So, you want to, you want to, you want to organize Sense. it in a way that is efficient. Yeah, right. So, there's a lot of effort that goes into actually designing the database tables, mm -hmm. right? So that's all fine. And that's the traditional way mm -hmm. of doing databases. And, and the large database companies have been doing this for a long time. Now, if you think of the modern, modern day, you want, you want to have more than two dimensions, but you're not, just, you're not just interested in data, but you're also interested in other things like storing images and things like that. And you want to have pointers to them. Right, mm -hmm. and quickly becomes a little bit of a complicated thing. So th this is where the idea of what is known as an unstructured database comes into play. Okay, and the idea is that you want to be able to manage multitude of different information pieces, but you want to still be able to have the same database access, search, lookup, and things like that. Okay, this is not a new idea, um, uh, you know, um, of an unstructured database, but. MongoDB sort of has been, I think, in the right place at the right time. Mm. And, you know, with the volume of data increases has been sort of been able to, what I would say, get the developer community behind it. Right. So it's become very quickly the developer's choice of database tool okay. for modern applications. Right. Okay. And, and that's important because uh, for most new software technologies to pick up, Mm -hmm. or, or to become a reality, you need the developers to actually use it and pick it up, 
you know, the okay, it has yeah, to be developer yeah, yeah, yeah. developer driven. Right. So, um, you know, it's one of the most downloaded software in in, in the database world today, um, and and um, it's no small thing. <laughs> no, it's not a small thing, and and you know, and they've done a good job of transitioning that software to the cloud, so you can actually run this software uh, from Amazon and from Microsoft okay. Azure yeah. and from Google Cloud Computing and things like that. So it's it's easily deployable, easily runnable. Um, you know, games like Fortnite, for example, are uh, written. You know, the, the database of choice is uh, MongoDB. Huh. Right now, so this is a behind-the-scenes software. It sits as a it's as an application. That is using it, mm. and uh, it's had phenomenal growth. And when there's phenomenal growth, there's phenomenal competition. So other companies have tried to, mm. for example, uh, Microsoft tried to copy the database style. Um, so they mimicked the functionalities, but didn't quite mm-hmm. manage to copy it. Uh, yeah, right. Amazon tried the same thing. <laughs> They've all this basically now decided that it was better for us to partner with Mongo and basically offer mm. that via our cloud platform so that our cloud customers can actually use this database if they wanted this database of choice, if it's this that if that's their database of choice. Mm. So um, again, it's a relatively small company and um, a phenomenal run runway. Mm. The thing I, I, I like to think here about is often what happens with new technology that is especially driven by uh, developers, uh. the uptake is in new applications. Right. So new applications are being developed using MongoDB. Mm. And database by design is fundamentally very sticky because if you're, for example, a bank and you have databases, your database is yeah, really right. running your bank. You're not going to strip out your database very easily. Just that again. Right. So yeah. that makes sense. the stickiness works both ways because if MongoDB is winning new business, those yeah. businesses are going to stick with MongoDB. Yeah, right. uh, it's going to be very sticky and those you know, those companies are going to yeah, yeah, you know, pervade sense. across the organization. But those old uh, mm. school businesses that are using old school technology, they're also going to stick around with old school technology until they you know, they have an IT project that says, oh, they need to look into upgrading our mm. software, mm. right? Yeah. So it's, it's a slow burn on that side, but there's a lot of new things that they're winning. So, you know, this has been a phenomenal growth company uh, for some time. I haven't looked at the share price recently, but it has done well. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, uh, a big market opportunity, strong growth, a lot of, you know, upselling happening. Nice. Um, yeah, and in, in this too, I think. Yeah, it's a thirty dollar share in twenty seventeen. That's like nice now, bagger. take that two hundred dollar plus. So we'll take that. It's a good win. Um, yeah. So again, small uh, developer driven company yeah. created by you know uh, still the founder lead. Actually, the CTO has recently I think stepped down. Mm. Um, the co-founder and CTO, but mm. very good team company. I like it. Very good. Thank you, mate. Um, that's a really great question. Thank you for the for the question. Sorry we couldn't answer all your. <laughs> <laughs> your entire question, um, Craig. We just uh, there's only so many we can do, and so whatever time, but gives you some sense of it. Also, some sort of idea of the sort of opportunity I think that exists in the companies that are really making a, a huge difference to the world and, and finding new ways to do things in very very big markets. And we're certainly seeing some of that. Um, would you buy MongoDB today? I assume you would. Yeah, it's again you know MongoDB and Mercado Libre. Those are some of my larger holdings. And you're so on the hook I- to buy me on Wednesday to buy Mercado Libre, okay? Yeah, I'll remind you to buy If you don't, you have to pay me the difference. All right. <laughs> Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Question from Anthony, mate. He says, dear guys, hope that this message finds you well. It does. I'm well, Doc. Are you well? 
I am very good. Excellent. Thank you, Anthony. Um, I avidly listen to the podcast and I have a few questions that I'm hoping you might consider. What are your thoughts on the Palantir IPO? And as an Australian, how we avail ourselves of this opportunity? Thanks in advance. Best regards, Anthony. He finishes with a hashtag full on. What do you know of Palantir, mate? I know that there's a company that, of that name. <laughs> I know that it, a lot of people are talking about it. But you know what? I really have not uh, dug into it. Yeah. So I have really no comments. I mean, the, here's the thing, right? The thing is that there are a lot of interesting companies that, are, yes. that IPO. Yeah. And um, I just generally only look at the ones that um, come my way. Somebody mentioned it, you know, so I have, you know, a lot of people talk about it. I actually haven't looked at it, so that's my answer. I'm sorry, Anthony. I have not looked at it, so I have nothing meaningful to actually say. Yeah, oh, look, I don't either. I, I have to say, um, they. Uh, I did a quick, I did a quick search before we started the the call and end or the, the the podcast, and uh, it was described as a secretive big data firm. And I have to say, oh, look, here's the thing, right? The, these things are made to look analysts like us look stupid, doc. Because if you have a view on it, it goes the other way. It's like everyone's going to say, "I told you so." Either way, no matter what. I gotta say, if something as long as a secretive big data firm, and that's as much as you know about them. I gotta say, there's got to be better ways to invest, right? Like if, if you're literally trying to hope that maybe the hype is real, if that if that's kind of, and I'm not saying you are thinking that, saying that by the way, Anthony, that's not that's not my my point. Um, but you know, to the extent that if you're investing in this a secretive business that you don't know much about or no one knows much about, because it might go up, I reckon that's one you best avoided. Uh, again, maybe 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 it does go up, maybe it doesn't, maybe it's Groupon, maybe it's Zoom. Uh, it's just hard to know, mate. So I I, I think it's you know. Unless you have a really strong investment case, genuine investment case, uh, based on the company's fundamentals and, and opportunities and all that kind of stuff, unless you have a big sense of why it would be successful, I would be I would be skeptical about any of those sorts of IPOs personally. Uh, how do you get access to it? You're almost certainly not going to get access to it, unfortunately. Um, the IPO normally the IPO shares are very very tightly held in general, even for Americans, let alone for Australians, where we don't have that direct access to a broker or an investment bank who's offering it. So your chances of getting it are really 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 small, unfortunately. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. I will say for what it's worth, um, there's a I listened to a podcast recently, Doc, and, and there was a point made about IPOs, and, and the point was made: stocks at IPO tend to do really really well. But if you bought the stock after the IPO, you've done much less well and probably even potentially badly, right? The difference is the day one spike. If everyone wants, if everyone's talking about Palantir as you are, Anthony, and everyone jumps on it on day one, the share price doubles. Well, guess what? The people who made the money are the insiders. The people who bought it double double the IPO price because they want to stag profit. Maybe they're going to have a different experience as a shareholders. Maybe not. Maybe the stock goes on and does wonderful things. Um, I would just be. I'm generally nervous, cautious about IPOs. I'm even more cautious when there's a hyped IPO where the day one, your, your chance to actually buy the stock, you probably almost certainly won't buy at the IPO price. It'll probably list at, you know, first thing in the morning at 50, 70, 100% more than the IPO price. And so that's the price you'd be buying for if you're going to. That that makes the hurdle just that little bit a lot higher actually. And I'd, I'd, be, I'd, be, I'd be cautious. Is that fair, Doc? Or am I being too cynical, too conservative? Um, so I think the only thing I'll say is that um, so typically what happens is in uh, I think most IPOs go up largely because I think they're underpriced. <laughs> right. So uh, I think the but again we don't get the IPO price right. That's the other. Thing. No, we wouldn't get the IPO price. Yeah. But I mean a lot of, we could make the same argument for say MongoDB for example, which probably went right. up on its IPO. Right, right, but right. if you if you bought the stock even later, so I think what I would say is that you know you should buy a company if you think it has future potential and yeah. you know you're paying the right price based on the future potential mm -hmm. there is uh, you know some runway you know what the company is doing um, I wouldn't buy mm -hmm. it just because it's a big secret of 
data form, mm. <laughs> doing security stuff. Right, right, right. Um, I think so. Yeah, you need to have an idea of what the company is going to be worth mm. in, I guess, in the future. Right. Um, so and, that, and a reasonable kind of fundamental based assumption for, yeah, those, for those expectations. Expectations, right? yes. Yeah, you have to base it based on something that you, yeah. So I think some research is, is, is necessary. Yeah. You need to look at the numbers. You need to see what they've disclosed. The other thing I'll point out is in the IPOs, sometimes what happens is the IPO document might be very long, but the number of data points that you get is actually, you know, some of, some of it is withheld. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you got to be careful about what is being shared. So, yeah. yeah. And again, yeah, have- IPO, the, the IPO document is often a sales document, right? So also read it with that yeah. with that perspective. They're trying to get you to, to buy the shares. Um, so it tells you everything you need to know about the incentives at, at play. Good question, Anthony. Thank you for asking it. Sorry we couldn't give you a, a more detailed answer on the company, uh, but hopefully the, the broad approach gives you some, sets you up at least to, to understand how you might go about uh, investing if you choose to. Next question, mate, comes from Chris. Hi, Scott and Doc. Thanks for the continued content and enthusiasm when talking all things finance. My question is regarding the strong general correlation between the ASX and the S&P indices. Historically, there is a difference in performance, but generally both indices seem to trend in the same direction over the short and long term. Why is this? Is it as simple as the US has a far greater direct influence on Australia than what I realise, or is there more to it? Also, do you think something like coronavirus could break this trend? It's still early days. However, I feel Australia is handling the pandemic far better than the US and I'm interested if this will reflect in each country's market. He finishes, if you can't fit this into your weekly podcast, maybe you could do a special mailbag episode on Sunday and give us a wink. I love that, mate. Thank you. That's that's, that's great, Chris. Uh, He says, keep up the waffle. We will absolutely keep up the waffle. Mm. Not the West Australian Football League, by the way. That's a whole different thing. We will keep up our waffling. Uh, thank you for uh, thank you for the question, Chris. I, I love that. So we will. How about that? We did a special Sunday mailbag episode. You were, you were amazingly psychic, Chris. Well done. <laughs> All right, Doc. There is a strong correlation between the ASX and S and P. Mm. Why do you think it is? Is it justified, and will it continue? I actually love this question because this question is, is this is a uh, we were talking about this the other we day. I was, I was actually whinging about it drives that. you nuts. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, actually, I'm going to answer the second question first. Because I think at a high level, I think we should not think of a market and the country as the same thing. Ooh, and, and the reason I'm, the I'm saying this is very, very important is, I'll give an example. Um, so Apple is listed in the US. Apple's business is not just the US, mm-hmm. right? Apple's business is the whole world. Yeah. Um, Commonwealth Bank is listed in Australia. Its mm-hmm. business is basically in Australia, mm-hmm. right? So I think you need to look at a market and then see where those companies are executing and what where mm-hmm. their sources of revenue are and things like that, right? So I think that's the, that's the most important thing. Yep. Um, and this is actually the reason why I think the two markets should not be correlated mm-hmm. largely mm-hmm. because... The and when, when we see the market, let's, let's say we're talking about the ASX 200, right? So, mm. it's a majority of the companies, the big banks, for example, are are banks, are retail banks. They basically serve um, customers inside Australia, right? So they are reflective of the Australian economy in in that sense. Uh, yes, miners are global. They 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 serve globally. But a lot of the other financial companies, insurance companies, they you know some of them are global, some of them are 
mostly serving local customers. So there's mm. that. So there's that. That you know, um, there's that aspect that needs to be considered. So therefore, I don't think the market should be correlated. But there is, at least in the short term, I think there's a sentiment-based correlation. Well, that market was up, therefore this market should be up. That market yeah, was yeah, down, true. therefore this market should be down. Yep. But it shouldn't be because just for that reason. I mean, you know, um, if our local economy is improving, then our market should be mm. not correlated to the U.S. <laughs> market yeah. because our local economy has got nothing really to do. Uh, like our bank's functionality mm-hmm. should have little to do with what Apple is doing, for example. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so yeah. that, that's what I think is the case. And then the question about performance that she's asked, I think that's, that's forward predictions, hard to do a forward prediction. But again, the, the distinction I'll say is that, you know, a country's coronavirus performance really is, has nothing to do with... Um, a country's market performance, again, because the market is not the country and the country is not the market. Yeah. Another way to think about that is Atlassian is an Australian company, head, you know, headquartered in Australia, but is listed in the US, right? So how do you factor that right, right, right. as an example? Um, it's again, um, and then I think there's the other, you know, the, the I think that's, I'd say that, you know, always ask the second question um, followed by the first question, right? So the first question is, well, okay, our economy is doing... F- uh, our coronavirus situation is better than therefore our, we should be, our stock market should do well. But then the, the follow-up question would be, but if if the whole world is having difficulty and nobody can come to Australia, well, then a lot of the economy that depends on other people coming here cannot function. And right. therefore, our economy also indirectly therefore suffers. Therefore, our stock market, which is reflective, which would hold, you know, things like, you know, travel stocks, for example, they're going to suffer. Anything related to tourism is going to suffer and so on. So there's, I mean, there's a lot of yeah. interplay. Uh, directionally, yes, but meaningfully, I don't know. It's very hard to say whether it's meaningfully going to be impactful or not. So, I'll close this by saying that I think the best thing to do is to think it's hard to think about the whole market because the whole market is made up of a bunch of different companies, yeah, yeah. right? So I think it's better to think about individual businesses, <laughs> you know, and you can have a view on whether a particular bank, for example, is going to do well or not because of ABC reasons. Mm. Um, you could have a view that Qantas would do well or not because mm. of ABC reasons. That's much easier to have a view on that than mm. Mm. Uh, a view on the overall market because I, th- I think... Um, there are too many factors. Now, mm. of course, you can come back to me and say, well, you know, if you can't have a view on this, then how do you know it's market beating or not? I mean, the simplest way that right, I, would, right. uh, I would answer that by saying is, you know, market generally has an average rate that it does. Mm. And if you think that a company is going to do more than that average rate, then I think over the long run, you'd be market beating. Uh, that's one way of thinking about... Uh, that's good, put it. Um, one way of thinking about it, you know, markets have historically done maybe 8%. Uh, I think forward-looking, I think they're going to be doing less for a whole bunch of different reasons. Right. Um, so, that you know, I, I look at it at that lens, you know, that I think the market is probably going to do an average of 7, mm. maybe, 6, maybe, um, uh, for a whole bunch of different reasons. Uh, but, you know, so you, therefore you weigh that into your uh, into your uh, in, into your factors. So if I think mm. a company can do twelve or fifteen, mm. then I feel like I'm you know it's going to be safely. Now the, the problem with my six, seven, eight discussion is if you're going to only try to uh, you know if you think it's seven and you're going to try to get eight, you might land into trouble because the market right. does more than you. So um, <laughs> exactly. you, you know um, I almost consider one percent outperformance relative to whatever my my hurdle rate is is a non-starter. Right. So I need a, a higher degree of out performance requirement no and i can be wrong for that but as long as i can get more often you know i'm right mm-hmm. 
enough with an, enough of an upside, then I, yeah. I think you know I should be fine. So that's how I generally think about these things. Nice. Um, I'm going to reflect some of what you said, Doc, and, and make some diff- different thoughts. Not necessarily opposing thoughts, just different ones. Um, Please make opposing. Make my opposing? Oh, if you want to. Sure. All right. Um, no, you're completely wrong, mate. No, I'm kidding. Um, all right. So here's the thing. I There is – so capital markets are supposed to be global and largely borderless. And if you believe that to be true, largely speaking, it kind of is, particularly with the big boys and the big global funds, global institutional investors, the global bond market certainly, then it makes sense that a global view will permeate across things like the rates of return required or the level of risk or opportunity in, in investing in general, right? If you believe the global uh, environment, the global economy impacts on all countries to a greater or less degree, and things like the risk appetite of investors changes, it makes sense. If, if all of a sudden equity investors want to go to cash, for example, and they're pulling money out of all of their investments here and in the US, it makes sense that both would fall kind of concurrently. Um, just because you're probably not going to say, I think I should go to cash, but I'm only going to sell my US shares. Or I'm going to go to cash, I'm only going to sell my Australian shares. So to some degree, it makes some degree of sense that those two should be correlated somewhat. Secondly, um, I'll come back to a, a disagreeing view, by the way, but in terms of why it would be correlated. Secondly, we're in a global physical economy where, for example, Chinese, um, let's pick China as a third party, Chinese economic growth or otherwise, Chinese economic activity or otherwise, impact China, impact, sorry, the US and Australia in different ways and in different amounts of ways, but in a similar kind of direction, right? So if Chinese economic activity falls, it impacts the US and impacts Australia. It impacts maybe our iron ore exports or our tourism. It may impact China, uh, the US consumer. It may impact uh, Chinese manu- US manufacturing, for example. So there are ways in which similar impacts physical, in the physical economy impact the same the same way in different countries. Not always to the same exact degree, but conceptually and directionally are similar. Uh, and again, just the US economy broadly, if the US economy is in a funk, then the US companies struggle and the reality simply is that US is the largest consumer market in the world. It's going to have flow-on effects for the rest of the world. So there are reasons why it would make sense for us to take our lead economically and financially from the world's largest markets, including the US and China. And again, as I said, China impacts both countries. So there is, you know, we're, we're in a global market, we're in a global um, global economy. It, it absolutely makes sense that there should be some degree of relative correlation, at least from time to time, and some of those big changes happen that do impact on multiple economies. Now, on the flip side of that, I will absolutely say I have very little um, – watch me put myself out of a job, Doc, with other, any other company in the industry. I have very little respect for much of our industry. And the reason is because people – you know, investors are lemmings. We run this way, we run that way. You know, when everyone starts selling, we keep selling. When everyone starts buying, we start buying. Now, I say we. Doc and I and the Motley Fool are very, very different. We actually don't care about that. But if you're everybody else and you're trying to effectively shadow the index – when the market falls, you want to sell too because you don't want to be caught holding something if everyone else is selling and you, you, you know, your, your asset loses value. Equally, if everyone else is buying, your asset goes up in value. You don't want to not own the asset. You want to be in the on the trade too. So that sense of kind of, you know, you're almost trying to watch other people and do what they're doing. And it may be doing a little bit differently to beat them by a little bit, but you desperately don't want to be too different from them. And so you want to do roughly what everyone else is doing. That self-fulfilling prophecy thing, that, that kind of, you know, the herd rushing left and right, then left and right, when the US falls, you kind of go, well, do I really want to buy today if they're selling and that must mean something. I don't really know what it means. I can kind of make up excuses as to what it might mean. I can convince myself and sound authoritative in my morning briefing note to explain why the US sold. And so if they do it, I guess we should do it too because that way at least we're doing the same thing. I, I, I'm actually not even kidding. I think, you know, there is I, – I don't, I don't think many people in the industry directly lie, but there is really a key sense that 
they kind of feel like they, they justify it to themselves, right? They convince themselves as to why the US movers must have been right and therefore why well, we must move with it because that was right in the first place. You know, why did the market move? You say, well, oh, let me come up with an example. Let me come up with a reason. Um, 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 oh, it was coronavirus. Okay, yes, coronavirus. Let's go with that. And you think, well, if it's coronavirus, then we better sell here. Yeah, let's do that too. And when you kind of drill it all back, you think, hang, hang on, who, who really actually knew why it moved and what, how far it moved? And, you know, and again, it'll go up again tomorrow after going down today. So you think, well, two days later, when it's gone down by one and up by one, and we, we're back where we started, were any of those moves really justified? Probably not. Long, long, and, uh, long and cynical answer. Enough to say, look, you know, this is a market that runs on sentiment and confidence and those things permeate globally. They always have. They do more so now than ever. And so, you know, should it move that way? No. Will it? Yes. Will it always? Almost certainly yes, directionally, um, particularly in those big moves, right? At a company by company level, as Doc's already said, that's where, and Chris, you've already mentioned this, this, this is where it starts to diverge because when you add those things up, uh, the market drops 1%, but, you know, um, let's pick a company for fun, Afterpay. It only drops half a percent. Uh, you know, when it goes up, market goes up by 2%, Afterpay goes up by 2.5%. All of a sudden, after two days, Afterpay is one percentage point ahead of the market. So those things will always happen and we'll always have puts and takes. Banks will go one way, miners go the other, grocers go one way, you know, restriction retail goes the other, tech goes one way, utilities go the other. The market is always at some total of the full lot uh, made up of those individual movements. And so both on a market level and a company level, um, that's where the, the outperformance opportunity comes. Now, as Doc said, not, not only when, you know, when Apple falls or our banks falls, that makes sense. Of course it doesn't. Equally, when, you know, when um, uh, Google's ad, ad revenue falls in the US and Woolworths falls here, you kind of go, guys, like, you know, seriously, just because the market falls there, Willie's really going to sell less baked beans? No, of course they're not. So why does the shares fall? Well, because sentiment and the economy and uh, we don't really know, but we have to say something in our morning briefing note, so let's make something up. It, it, you're exactly right, mate. It makes no sense. It's even more stark locally, I think, even than compared to the US because, you know, again, when the market's down 2%, everything's down roughly between one and three, including Woolies, including Transurban, including Sydney Airport, are just completely uncorrelated with... I don't know, just jeans, premier or, um, you know, pick, pick uh, the iron ore price, right? These things are just crazy. And so there is there is no reason for it. That's, again, I will say regularly, this is not an efficient market. There is no efficient market. Academics like to believe it because it helps their models. You can't model it unless you believe it's efficient. That's kind of one of those inputs you have to believe to, to do it. And so they do. And so they, they kind of talk themselves into believing it must be true. Um, evidence, um, I'll, I'll quote Buffett because I haven't done it for a couple of podcasts, Doc. Warren Buffett himself, both his track record and his own comments, the market is not efficient. And, you know, believing that it is is not very useful for anybody. It doesn't help. Um, it, it just, it, frankly, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a crazy, it's a crazy uh, construct, but it's what we go with. And when everyone does it again, if everyone believes the same thing, then, hey, who's going to say the emperor's got no clothes? The answer, of course, is the motley fool. And that's what we're here for. But most people won't. That was a long one, dude. Like, I need to take a breath. <laughs> yeah. That's almost like, you know. Uh, it's a mini rant, wasn't it? Yeah. My horse. Yeah. That's good. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's that. very good. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm literally, if, if I ever get fired, I've got no, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to clean streets or tax shelves at Woolies because no one no else is going to employ me. No, put no, it that you way. could just take the mic, go to Circular <laughs> T, and just rant out like that, and I'm sure it'll be all fine. <laughs> I'll get at least 45 cents for the uh, train trip home. Yeah, yeah. I did. Should we go to another question? Yeah. Easy. Question from Adrian, mate. Um, hey, Scott. I know we're in un very unprecedented times with low interest rates and everyone is saying we could be in a low interest rate environment for at least until 22, 22 from the Fed. But looking back, it seems like we've been in a similar situation during the GFC. From the GFC at the end of 2015, six years, 
the interest rate was at rock bottom. Just wanted to get your and Doc's thoughts on whether we're just living in a headline-catching time or we're just going through the normal cycle of what's required to get back up and running and there's nothing to worry about. Love the podcast. Didn't seem to see the Sunday mailbag on Apple Podcasts. Dear, oh dear. We still haven't got that fixed, have we? I don't know what's going on there. I will again ask the botfans at, at Podcast One and Triple M. Um, I've got to say, I'm not sure what's going on there. It's, it does show up on the um, on the website, on Apple's website, not the app. Um, I don't know if it's an app setting. I, I don't know Apple products well enough to know. But uh, always look. Assume we'll have an episode on Sunday. Um, if you haven't, if you don't see it, uh, then uh, have a jump online and see if you can find it that way. Um, often, uh, unsubscribing or resubscribing to the podcast app or deleting the app and reinstalling it can be useful ways to start. Much past that, I can't help you much. I apologise for that. We can't. We can't control much of what Apple does, um, so just have, have, have a manual look if you need to. Anyway, that's that's a, a tangent, mate. The key question, are we in a headline-catching time or is this a normal cycle? What's going on? Well, I think we're always in a headline-catching time. Is what I think. <laughs> that's a good point. The, the reason is that the headlines <laughs> – I mean, the whole way the, the headlines work is that you have a headline that's catchy. Yeah, um, negative news is more important than positive <laughs> news. Um, yep. and that drives traffic. Certainly sells better, doesn't it? So I think part of that, I think news flow is very fast and efficient and quick. Bad news flows very quickly these days. Um, manufactured news also can, can flow pretty quickly <laughs> these days, uh, largely because of social media and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, like I mean, there was a version of this even in the past, I think. It's just that I think the flow was was you know, mm. took time for information mm. to propagate and disseminate and things like that. So that's what I think, you know, like in, I think he's implying that, you know, there is the feds and the various reserve banks are um, directionally controlling the markets. Right. I don't think, I don't believe that's the case in the okay. sense that I think what the various uh, reserve banks are doing, they're directionally controlling money flow into the economy. And I mean, for this coronavirus crisis, what would they do? Mm. Not give money? Yeah, right. I mean, the alternative to that is, you know, so feds, for example, are buying bonds, bonds in turn mm. support uh, companies. Basically, you know, these are these are corporate bonds released by companies. Those companies in turn employ people. Mm. If those bonds become junk or not worthy, then, you know, those companies probably go bankrupt. If those companies go bankrupt, lots of people are going to be unemployed. Lots of businesses are going to be destroyed. It's the same thing as with, with what is, you know, that's, you know, that's a long-winded way of saying, well, you know, they're supporting mm. that for Basically, keeping the economy going is the same thing as saying, "Well, why do you need JobKeeper? We don't need JobKeeper. Yeah. Right? These mm-hmm. businesses are going to die. Well, you know, if we let the businesses die, right. then it has that flow. On. It's a it's a different ways of doing similar things, yeah. and I don't think they're trying to support the market either mm-hmm. way. It seems like they're supporting the market, but it's not. Uh, I think it's just supporting e- economic activity. So I think that's what they're doing. There is a flow on impact of that so whether the job keeper money that has come into people's pocket which has not been spent therefore it has mm. a um, you know a burst of impact on on the share market in terms of sales or online sales mm. yeah it absolutely does but uh, you know part of that is probably by design part of that is what is supposed to happen mm. um, the rates being low I mean yeah it looks like rates are going to be low that has impacts on valuation and impact on how you think about discounting and how you think about how much actually. Mm. Uh, I think the bigger thing to think about is if the rates are going to be low, then we can't expect if we were historically thinking of 10, 11% returns is what sort of the market delivers. I don't think we can expect that from the market because, mm. well, 
at the time you were getting 11% return from the market, your you know term deposit was giving you maybe 3% mm. or 4% or something like that. Well, now your term deposit is giving you half a percent yeah, maybe if you're yeah. lucky. So therefore the market is not going to give you that because yeah. well, it should exist on cash interest at the moment. It's tough, tough old. It's tough. Life, so it? yeah. it's all a relative yeah. thing. Uh, uh, yeah, so that's what I think. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. what I what I think is hard to know is there's a lot of borrowing that's happening mm-hmm. and it's hard to know what's going to happen with all that borrowing. I mean, somebody's going to pay <laughs> at some point, somewhere, sometime, yeah, yeah. right? And future generations in the, mm-hmm. in the future and so on. So that that is the part that is unclear to me. Mm-hmm. I just don't understand what's going to happen in, you know, all the trillions of dollars of debt effectively. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't have a a good answer for that. Yeah, me either, mate. I I kind of feel like I'm half half agreeing with Adrian, half more concerned. I, I, I'm an optimist by nature and I wasn't concerned during the GFC of the amount of stimulus being pumped into the economy because we had the room to do it. I have to say we went out of the GFC without really fixing anything before we started this one. So if you think about kind of the, the starting point of let's call it just kind of broad financial health, the economy was in a – the government sector was in a much stronger position in 2007 – than it was in 2020. And so going into the second crisis, it didn't really recover or fix the, uh, it didn't kind of make good, refill the ammunition, call it whatever metaphor you want, right, before you hit 2020. And now we find ourselves, you know, the Fed can't cut rates any further or go negative, but realistically it can't. So now it's in bond buying mode. And so, you know, we're kind of digging deeper. Uh, You know, whatever hole we dug ourselves financially as a a government sector in 089, we're now digging deeper again. And at some point I do worry about, our ability to fund the next crisis on top of this one. Like at some point, the whole thing, you know, there's some reckoning at some level. Now, I don't think we need to necessarily go back to 2007 levels or previously, but I have to say, if you think about kind of what else is left in the locker, there's already not much. I mean, buying buying straight up bond portfolios on the market for the Fed is, I mean, so what does it do eventually? Just nationalise the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, it's kind of, you know, there's only so much left to do at some point if and when the next crisis starts, if we start from this point. Um, so I'd, I would desperately love to see them sort themselves out and fix things between now and the next one. God knows when it comes. Hopefully it's a very long time away. But I, I am a little bit concerned that without meaningful action, it really doesn't have much left next time around. So I am a bit concerned, Adrian, I have to say. Uh, not not enough, by the way, to change my, my behaviour or my investing activity. I think there's still, again, even if it's true, what do you, what else do you do? Uh, the answer is investing in quality companies that have you know good long-term prospects. That, that, all, that remains the answer, right? Whatever happens with the world, Apple still has more phones. Um, Amazon ships more product. I, I, I just think that that those things are true. Um, well, the services business and other stuff, of course, but you know, just as a, as a simple proxy, um, I, I go to invest in the world's best business. I think that's that's the only way to respond, regardless of your concerns. I mean, I guess you go to cash and hide in a cave, but I don't think that's probabilistically a useful decision. So I'm just continuing to uh, continuing to invest. How about you, mate? Yeah. So I was going to say there's there's one thing I was going to point out as the difference between now and uh, GFC. I think during the GFC time, mm. it would have been hard to find businesses with the type of balance sheets that exist today. Yeah, that's right. So, so the difference really in my mind is today we have got companies which have balance sheets that basically look like fortresses. Mm-hmm. Companies actually are in a much better position. And, you know, going back to why the insiders so were thinking, why the Fed is buying um, bonds, most of the bonds are actually going to support those companies mm. that actually support a lot of jobs, right? Mm. So, I mean, effectively, if you think about 
you know, the type of, if you think of it like Starbucks and the number of people it employs mm. or other restaurant chains that employ people, those companies also have bonds out there, right? Yeah, right. So you're basically supporting that. But, but what, I, what, I, what I think is that, yes, the government sector is in a bad shape mm. uh, relative to 2008, but the corporate sector, at least businesses, a lot of these businesses, are, are, like, I mean, I can't think of a time when there were companies with the type of balance sheet like a Google or an Apple has. Like, yeah, right. you know, it's hard to imagine a time that there were companies which could basically say, okay, we can close shop for six months and nothing will happen. Yeah, okay. Right. So I think that that's a big, so, I mean, there's a shift maybe in uh, in the equation in, in mm. terms of, you know, businesses that can, can, mm. can thrive under various different circumstances mm. Mm. without government support. Um, and I think that's a positive. I desperately hope you're right, mate. I, I do worry about the rest of the small business sector and other things. I think the big guys are big and important and for investors, that's probably a good sign. I do worry a little bit that maybe there's not enough strength elsewhere in the economy. Um, Apple and Google do so much stuff and you're right about the characterization, but if the smaller, medium-sized businesses, if the weaker public businesses can't do it, um, having a few big tech behemoths left is not going to be enough to support an economy, unfortunately, I don't think, or at least I'm concerned that might be true. So I hope you're right and I'm wrong. Put it that way. <laughs> we'll see how we go. Mate, that's it. We're done for this special Sunday mailbag edition. Of course, before we go, please take a Sunday afternoon decision to subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast. If you already are, thank you very much. I know I say this every week and I'm sorry that you're hearing it every single week, but you've got to do something to get more subscribers. And hey, if you here's the deal. If you help us out, we won't ask as often. Put it that way. So it's in your hands, dear listener. If you're a loyal listener and sick of this, sick of this outro, then tell your friends. Get us some more subscribers so we can stop begging, pleading for new subscribers. However, in the meantime, if you're not yet, please do subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app, or of course, the Podcast One app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating on iTunes. We'd really love five stars, but please yourself, leave us a review. Please be kind. And of course, as I said, tell your friends and it might get us off our little bit of a uh, subscriber soapbox here. Anyway, also too, if you want to get something straight to your inbox, go to fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. Triple M. That'll give you some emails from me every now and again, plus some marketing material from The Fool and an offer to join Motley Fool Dividend Investor. That's it for this special edition of Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Tuesday with some money hacks and, of course, another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.